Hello and welcome to The Main Question, a podcast series from the University of Maine, where we ask big questions of the researchers, innovators, and changemakers tackling today's big issues. I'm your host, Ron Liznet. Today we visit with Jacqueline Gill, who studies paleoecology. We'll get to what that term means precisely during the interview, but to basically break it down, she studies plants and animals that have been gone a long time, sometimes millions of years. She also studies our natural world today with the goal of trying to understand how and why some species have gone extinct while others have survived, and what it means for how we and our planet adapt to the rapidly changing world we find ourselves in. Some of her work is painstaking, using a microscope to study pollen spores or seeds that have been pulled from lake sediment cores dating back through multiple ice ages. On occasion, she studies fossilized remains and very rarely, as she'll share with us, mummified remains of species that haven't been around for thousands of years. She asks big questions. How do large animals like elephants and extinct woolly mammoths change and improve the environments they inhabit? Some of her work sounds like it could be part of a script for a Jurassic Park sequel. All of her work helps us to begin to answer our main question for this podcast. How does studying the Earth's past life help us understand our world today and prepare us for the future? There's so many different directions we could go in to start this conversation. Uh, This might come out of left field a little bit, but out of curiosity, what are the chances that in our lifetimes we will see an extinct woolly mammoth roaming the Earth again? That's a, a fun question. And it's a complicated one because the the idea of cloning for really old extinct species like mammoths is is complicated. And if you're interested, I, I recommend my colleague Beth Shapiro's book, How to Clone a Mammoth, which gets into this topic. Um, but the sort of cloning that we think of in terms of, you know, how Dolly the sheep was cloned in the 90s, that's never going to happen with a woolly mammoth because you, we don't have an intact cell, um, which you need for the the basically the method that they use to clone, where you transfer the nucleus of of one species into the nucleus of another, uh, a cell. Uh, And so that somatic cell nuclear transfer, it's called, um, that's not going to be possible. And so, you know, the other technique would be sort of engineering a woolly mammoth from the ground up using its genetic code, like a blueprint. The problem there is that the fragments of DNA that we have for these extinct animals is... um, they're, they're, they're broken up and they're sort of scattered. And so you have to piece together an incomplete puzzle of its genome. And so that's hard to do because the only way we can fill in the gaps is with modern organisms like elephants. And so you never really can, can confidently reconstruct the full blueprint of a mammoth. And so the most likely scenario, uh, which I, I'm putting most likely in scare quotes, which you can't see, but is, uh, is something like a genetically modified elephant that's mammothy i.e. you um, basically take certain genes that we know make mammoths like mammoths. Like, for example, they had, we know from their, um, their genetic code that they had really thick fur and these fat deposits that would help them keep them warm or really small ears so they'd lose less heat. Um, and they had a special hemoglobin in their blood that was sort of like an antifreeze to help them live in those colder conditions. And so what you could do is basically take an elephant genome and uh, tweak little genes here and there and make a mammothy elephant. And so it's basically it's a transgenic elephant that looks like a mammoth, walks like a mammoth, is pretty mammothy. Um, and that's something that I, I would say is, you know, not outside the realm of possibility. Having said that, 
it's one of those things where if you if you read up on this like I do, um, it's always you know within the next five years. But they've been saying that for well over five years at this point. So who knows? You study things that have been gone a long time. Uh, is that what a paleoecologist does, and, and how and wh- how and why do you do that? Yeah, so I would actually say I both study things that have been gone for a long time, and I study uh, a, a pretty much all the species that made it through the end of the last ice age till today, we have this incredible array of ice age survivors as well. So we have these extinctions like mammoths, but things like pine trees and robins and um, blue whales are also ice age animals that are remarkable survivors too. And I think both the extinct critters and the survivors have clues about how our ecosystems work and how they might respond to a changing world. So paleoecology is really just um, the study of, of Earth's life, but on really long time scales. And, you know, th- that can be anything from, you know, tens of millions of years all the way up to the sort of more recent historic record. So these are big brushstrokes of time and space. Um, is that harder to put together? And is that uh, and be, is it better and more effective to try to answer the questions that you're asking uh, in that way? I like to think of it as um, a series of puzzles, which is one of the reasons I was really drawn to this field. I, I love I love puzzles. I love, um, you know, problem solving. And in, in my field, we can't really go out and use the tools that my modern ecologist friends get to use. I can't go out and look through binoculars at a giant ground sloth and see what food it's eating, right? So the only tools that we have available to us, um, you know, in, until someone invents a time machine, are forensic tools. And so we we really even use some of the same kinds of methods that a forensic scientist might use to reconstruct a crime scene. So if you're familiar with shows like CSI or Bones, they'll often talk about using insects or pollen or the chemistry of soil to reconstruct uh, the environment around someone when they were maybe murdered or something like that. Um, And in my case, we use those similar kinds of tools, but we're forensically reconstructing an ecosystem and how it changed uh, uh, maybe over decades to centuries to millennia. Plants and animals have always gone extinct naturally. One term is naturally concluded experiments. I saw that. Um, is that different from some of the extinctions we're hearing about today? Yeah, uh, I think it's important to know that, you know, we often talk about this sort of background rate of extinction, that there's this natural process. Uh, sometimes that that those natural extinctions are happening because species are evolving into other species and they're not really going extinct. Um, It's just their descendants look differently than their great, great, great grandparents. In other cases, the world changes and we lose certain lines in our family tree of life completely. Um, The trilobites are a great example. There are no descendants of trilobites today. Um, And so, you know, that when the trilobites were gone, that was the end. Um, And so both these natural extinctions and um, also the the sort of recent natural experiments in extinction can tell us something about extinction risk. And the one difference between, say, losing woolly mammoths, uh, whether that was due to changing climates or, you know, human hunters moving across the globe, um, you know, those extinctions can still inform you know, how we think about species at risk today. And the real difference between now and, say, 10,000 years ago is we have a really good handle on what's happening. Um, and so I think one of the areas that 
is really exciting to me in terms of how paleoecology can contribute to this question is not just thinking about the causes of extinction, because you know we know why rhinos are going extinct. That's not a mystery. Um, but what we haven't explored as much is what comes next. What are the consequences of those extinctions? And that's what we focus on in our lab. Um, because regardless of why woolly mammoths went extinct, thinking about what we lost when we lost woolly mammoths in terms of their ecological role, um, that to me is an important question because that helps us understand the importance of elephants and what we really stand to lose if we were to lose elephants from Earth. Some people talking about the sixth mass extinction. Are we in the middle of that? Is that true? And how, if so, how far along are we? It's, just, it's such an interesting question because the concept of mass extinctions was really formulated in the field of geology to, to pinpoint, or paleontology, to pinpoint these, these times when, you know, upwards of 95% or more of all life on Earth was lost in a relatively short period of time, you know, geologically speaking. And so... You know, it's it's a very powerful metaphor, and you know, maybe motivating people to think about protecting our biodiversity today. But it's really difficult to say with any certainty whether we're in a mass extinction or not, um, because it's one of those things that we we won't know until like ten million years when we can look back at the fossil record that we're forming today as a species and, you know, some future paleontologist uh, or, you know, space paleontologist might might come and, um, you know, examine our fossil record. And, you know, it's, it's kind of up for debate whether or not what's happening today would show up or not um, in terms of the, the magnitude of species losses. So on the one hand, yeah, it's a useful metaphor. Scientifically, who knows, because the only way we'll ever know, you know, will be so far in the future that it's not useful. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't really think it matters whether we're in a mass extinction or not, because, you know, losing rhinos from Earth is a big deal, even, you know, regardless of whether it's part of a mass extinction or not. I care, most people care, um, and I don't think we have to necessarily lose you know, 90% of all life on the planet for it to be meaningful. How much of this phenomenon is man-made right now, do you think? Is there any way to gauge that? The extinction crisis? Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at the causes of extinctions today, the vast majority of them are happening because of human activity. Um, some of those might be cases of, you know, small or rare small populations of rare species that might, you could argue, you know, might have been on their way out anyway. If you have this, you know, tiny little tree frog that only lives in one species of bromeliads on this one mountain. Um, yeah, that's probably something that wasn't, you know, going, you know, wasn't really going to be around in a million years anyway, um, you know, due to these natural processes. But on the other hand, you know, we know we can actually attribute most of the extinctions that we're seeing to directly to human activity. And the vast majority of those extinctions are caused by over-exploitation, i.e. hunting, you know, going out and just taking, spe you know, collecting species or, or shooting species, taking them, um, or habitat loss. You know, you bulldoze the habitat, you know, create more parking lots, that sort of thing. Or a lot of it is con land conversion for agriculture. Um, and then a big one is species introductions. So when you bring predators to a, an island for the first time, a lot of things go extinct. Um, and so we've seen that with things like rats, pigs, house cats uh, being introduced to islands especially. And so those are all events that we can directly attribute to people. 
Losing large animals, mammoths in prehistoric times, elephants or rhinos today, how and why does that have more of an effect than losing smaller creatures? We often talk about these big animals as you know, keystone species. You might have heard this term, the idea being that if you have a stone arch, the, the stone at the very peak of that arch, that's the keystone. If you take it out, the whole arch falls apart. Um, and maybe you could sort of lose other stones here and there, and it doesn't really matter. So the idea of a keystone species is one that has a disproportionate impact or relative to how, how much of it there is on the landscape. And so really big animals often have a really big influence just because they're, they're so large, they're eating a lot, they're moving around, they're trampling, they're spreading seeds in their poop. Um, and so species like elephants, for example, we know are critical to creating and maintaining their habitats. We wouldn't have a savanna if we did, in Africa if we didn't have large herbivores. And we know that so many species rely on that habitat. And so they really are fundamentally dependent on these keystone species to kind of create and maintain these, these open mosaics of trees and grass as just one example. So big animals have big impacts. Uh, that doesn't mean that the little guys aren't important too. Um, small species, you know, small-sized species, you know, microbes, um, less charismatic species. They can all be really important. And you know, I mean, just look at a mosquito for an example of just how influential, you know, you can be. And size really does not matter in, in some cases. Um, but in terms of you know habitat maintenance and creation, a lot of these large species are are disproportionately important. What is rewilding, and is it a good idea? Rewilding is this idea that, um, you know, we've documented the loss, the local loss of a lot of species, or in some cases extinctions, of some of these really important animals, um, like these ecosystem engineers, like, um, like elephants. And so the idea is, well, we can bring back those animals two places they've been lost, or in the case of complete extinction, maybe we bring back their closest analog. Uh, as an example, um, when this idea was first introduced by Josh, Josh Donlin and others um, in the mid-2000s, they talked about the Great Plains and how you know maybe we should be bringing elephants back to the Great Plains to uh, recreate the function of the mammoths and mastodons that were lost. Now that's a, an extreme example, and I think people can get really caught up in the the specifics of any particular case example. Um, I think rewilding as a concept is really useful as a thought experiment to help us understand why animals matter in their ecosystems and what we lose when we have an extinction. But I also think there are some cases where rewilding can be really useful if applied in a uh, a really responsible framework that takes into account local stakeholder needs. Um, there are some examples of cases of you know rewilding where um, you know uh, the Aldabra tortoise is one example. It was introduced. Um, there, there was a tortoise that was reintroduced to an island where tortoises had gone extinct, and that tortoise was able to disperse the seeds of several plants and basically prevent further extinction because we all know that these animals aren't operating by themselves. And so, um, you know, that's a, that's a much, you know, <laughs> replacing a, one extinct island tortoise with another island tortoise that behaves a lot like it is a very different scenario than putting lions into the Great Plains, right? And of course, if you look at places like the UK, the big controversies there are about whether or not beaver should be re reintroduced to the, you know, the British Isles, right? And here in, you know, Maine, we don't think of beaver as, you know, necessarily being that controversial, although, you know, 
maybe look at your neighborhood Facebook group and you might have some different right. <laughs> different right. discussions about beaver. But, you know, I think I think it's a very um, there are very localized impacts um, in, in terms of, you know, you have to think about it both as a, a broad concept, but also how rewilding might play out in your own backyard. Isn't there a, a project uh, proposed in Siberia around this? There's this idea that's been suggested that these large herbivores might help to prevent runaway feedbacks uh, in a warming world. Um, and what I mean by that, in, in the Arctic. And what I mean by that is, um, if you look at the permafrost, um, there's some suggestion that having big herbivores might help keep out shrubs, and we know shrubs are encroaching into the Arctic. They're breaking up the permafrost, and that's releasing more methane. Herbivores also, in the wintertime, they need to eat, so they're brushing snow away, to, and they're exposing the ground, and that might help keep the ground and the permafrost more robust, more, more thick and, and cold and frozen. And so all of those things can be good for keeping the permafrost from warming. And when the permafrost warms, and thaws, it starts releasing a lot of carbon and particularly methane. And so there's this hypothesis that these large herbivores might actually help the Arctic be more resilient in a warming world. And so to test this hypothesis, um, you think about Jurassic Park, well, there's, there is a Pleistocene park. So the Pleistocene being the last two and a half million years of our of ice ages, um, and they have uh, there's an area uh, outside of Chersky uh, that they have brought bison and horses and muskox to this part of the Arctic, and they are testing this hypothesis to see whether or not our you know surviving ice age herbivores. Um, might, uh, if you, you know, we were to expand their populations and bring them back to places in the Arctic where we've lost them, then perhaps they might help with, you know, they might help save the world. Wow. You know, you were part of a team that explored a, a permafrost cave in Siberia, and the Science Channel did a documentary called uh, Lost Beasts of the Ice Age. For a scientist like yourself, was that like uh, hitting the lottery? What did you find there, and what was unique about what you saw there? It was it was one of those things where I was at the time I was thinking, wow, I'm so busy. It's right before the semester starts. Why would I ever do this to myself? I'm going up for tenure shortly. Um, and but then I decided, you know, I can't pass up this opportunity. Um, I, I have a new funded project to work across both sides of the, um, the Bering Land Bridge. So Alaska and Russia. And so I, I you know, I, I decided to do it. And uh, I'm so glad that I did um, because being in, you know, having access to these these tunnels in the permafrost um, is exposing, you know, incredible, amazingly well-preserved, you know, we can't even call them fossils. They're really mummies. Um, and so going into those those caves in the permafrost was really like stepping you know, through a, a, a stepping out of a time machine into an ice age world. And, you know, I earlier I said that I never get to see my study organisms up close and personal. Um, this was kind of an exception to that because, you know, when someone hands you a cave lion cub that looks like it could have died two or three days ago and and it's 40,000 years old, I mean, that it's a, it's a species that hasn't been around for at least, you know, 10,000 years and its claws are still sharp. Uh, and its fur is still soft. I mean, <laughs> I never get to do that. You know, I, 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 my science is mostly done in my mind's eye. And um, so to be able to see some of the, the characters that populate my mental picture of the Ice Age, um, 
was was well worth any risk or stress or um you know, or, you know, I ended up in a Russian ICU for, because of this trip, and, and it was still worth it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you you had quite an ordeal yourself uh, physically and medically, right? I did, yeah. So uh, these, the you know, it was 24 hours of, of flight to get to to this part of the world, and, and it's very remote. And then once we were there, you know, it was roughly seven hours a day there and back with boats or on boats um, to get to our field site. And uh, for filming this documentary, uh, and while we were also doing some really cool science at the same time. And it turns out that flying for 24 hours and then being cramped up on a boat for, you know, a cumulative of amount of seven hours a day uh, is, is, is not great, <laughs> especially if you're, you know, there's, there's no bathroom on the boat. And so, you know, I wasn't drinking enough water. And so, you know, being dehydrated and having long haul flights, um, I ended up getting deep vein thrombosis in both of my legs. Um, so these are um, blood clots uh, that are, you know, tied to a lack of, of movement, often associated with sitting for prolonged periods and flights. And then, um, pieces of the clots broke off and um, pretty badly damaged both of my lungs. And so um, the very last day of filming, I was starting to feel a bit rough. And we were uh, headed back to the village that we were staying in. And uh, I was finding that I was getting winded just getting up to go to the bathroom. And uh, that was, you know, just walking, you know, 15, 20 paces. And that was my sign that something was really wrong. And so when we flew back to the nearest city, um, which was Yakutsk, it's a city in the permafrost, the coldest city in the world, um, I, w- I was taken straight to the hospital, and I was uh, I was there for just over two weeks. But obviously recovered and feeling good now. Yeah, I, I was, and you know, I would say the the take home messages there are definitely learn about uh, DVTs and how to prevent them, especially if you travel. Um, listen to your body and um, get good travel insurance <laughs> because that um, I ended up being flown home on an air ambulance and um, you know thanks to the the film production company for getting us really good travel evacuation insurance and drink water too and, yeah drink lots of water <laughs> now you have your own podcast warm regards it was nominated for a best green podcast what's that show about what are you trying to do there yeah warm regards is a climate change podcast uh, and when we started a few years ago there weren't really a lot of conversations happening in the in the podcast realm about climate change and there's something really magical about podcasts because and they feel really personal as you listen to them. You start to feel like you become friends with the, the people that are, you know, you're listening to. They're sort of getting in your head. And so we really wanted to use that that really personal nature of podcasting to help humanize conversations around climate change. And it's been a really fun experience. I've gotten to talk to really amazing people, um, everything from Arctic youth ambassadors to, um, you know, one of the founders of the environmental justice movement, um, to people, you know, to academics, to people really on the front lines. And this, we're about to actually start a new season where we're changing our format a little bit. Um, we're moving away from the, the conversations on the front lines of climate change to uh, our first uh, themed season around the theme of data. Um, we thought it would be good to start with the basics, uh, but don't be scared by 
you know, if that sounds a little like it's just going to be us, you know, reading off of spreadsheets, we're going to be really exploring this from lots of different angles. We've got an entire episode on disinformation campaigns. We have an episode on creative uses of data um, or representations of data, everything from theater to knitting the, the climate warming stripes. Um, and then we have episodes about, you know, what does it mean to you know, when a data point is your life, if you're someone who's dealing with an illness related to climate change, or you have to make a decision as a mayor about, you know, how to manage your your town or your city. Um, so we really want to keep looking at climate change from lots of these different, really accessible human angles. Your thoughts in general about how science in general or climate change in particular is communicated or not these days to the public? I mean, we see a lot of stories about it, but what are your thoughts about the flow of information and the use of that information? I would say that this is really a golden age of science communication. We have these incredible tools that are opening up new opportunities for scientists to be really accessible to the public in totally new ways. There's an, an incredible science community on Twitter. Um, people are doing you know, there's Skype a scientist where you can connect scientists to your classrooms. Um, there's just lots of really fun, creative approaches out there. Many of them are desperately in need of audiences. And so I often hear these tropes that, oh, scientists need to engage with the public more, or scientists aren't getting out there, or scientists are bad communicators. And when I look around me at my colleagues, I am seeing some incredibly amazing, creative scientists who are you know everything. I've got a I've got a friend who who wrote a book about um, whether animals fart or not. You know, <laughs> it's an it's like a great kids book, um, and you know these are scientists who are out there engaging, and you know I. So I, I would actually push back against that trope. I think that this idea of the ivory tower scientist that just sort of sits in their in their in their leather armchair and does science and refuses to to talk to the little people. I think that that's really broken down even just since I started grad school in to, in 2005 and um I, you know I would urge people to to look around because there are some amazing communicators out there. Um and I think that's changed in part that culture has changed in part because you know we are now seeing the demands of a warming world and, and the extinction crisis and, you know, all of these other environmental and health, public health issues. Um, there's, there's so many ways in which our everyday lives intersect with science. And I think it's more and more important for people to have a good understanding, to be science literate as citizens. And I also think the other reason it's changing is because, you know, we know um, so much now that representation matters uh, when it comes to improving the diversity of scientists. So right now, the population of scientists doesn't look very much like the diversity of the population of, of the country. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the lack of role models. And so a lot of people who, you know, have really fought against a lot of barriers to become scientists um, you know, for example, I'm a first-generation college student. Um, you know, when we when we make it, you know, a lot of us feel really compelled to to give back to the community and also to to widen the path and and to show other you know kids who are like us that yeah, you can be a scientist too. It's not just people who you know have you know wear white lab coats and have you know old, you know white hair and glasses and sort of right. mad scientist stereotype um scientists can can look like anybody at the same time i mean you see a lot of 
confirmation bias and people even when they're faced with facts they retreat more to their positions that goes against you know what uh, data and science is telling you so I mean it, it seems to be more contentious in a way too do you do you see that do you feel that I think that that could that could be true I think it's a it'd be interesting to, to think to look at the history of I guess divisiveness and and just to see like are, are these new problems or do we just feel like they're new because we have all these you know social social media and and uh, I mean I, I would say that there are a lot of concerted disinformation campaigns that are out there. You know, we've we've heard a lot, for example, about Russian bots spreading misinformation about everything from vaccines to climate change um, to, to try to drive wedges uh, among people in society. And so I think we as citizens have a huge responsibility now to be data literate um, in ways that and media literate in ways that we, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we could trust that if something was coming out of a newspaper or that, that it was good information, right? Um, and so I, th I think that really puts a lot of responsibility on us as you know, everyday citizens to, to make sure that you know, we're, we're, we're learning about what confirmation bias is and how that makes us more likely to accept disinformation in some cases. Um, and also as scientists and communicators, we have a really strong responsibility to be to learn this about more about the psychology of what works in terms of messaging. Um, so I, I follow the science communication literature really closely. I read about what makes effective um, an effective communication effort. Uh, if, if, I, if I want someone as a scientist to care about the extinction crisis or to change their behavior so that we can address climate change, just giving them numbers and facts and figures, it turns out, doesn't work very well. And so I'm very deliberate in how I go about some of my communication efforts to you know, really emphasize the importance of empathy and storytelling, for example, over just you know, memorizing facts. What that also means, though, is that just everyday folks who care about issues like climate change you know, you don't have to avoid conversations with your neighbors or your family just because you think you might, you know, you might get something wrong. The, the important thing is that you just talk about these issues from where you're at in a very personal way. And if just talking about things like climate change or vaccines and, you know, your, you know, your everyday life and, your, and why they matter to you, that's going to be way more effective than any scientist who stands up on a podium and, you know, reads numbers. So talk about the work of the Climate Change Institute and how what you do, uh, you know, you involve students and how that percolates out into classes you teach, research you're doing. Yeah, so the, the Climate Change Institute is this wonderful interdisciplinary institute here at the University of Maine. I, we may be one of the oldest interdisciplinary you know, units in the country. We've been you know, around for over 40 years now. And the idea is that th these problems like climate change require us to, to think from a lot of different perspectives, everything from the physical science of how the earth works to how people respond. And you know, now we have communicators and educators and economists, you know, in addition to climate scientists and biologists. And we, uh, we do research around the world. Um, and we also do research here at home in, in Maine. And, you know, we try to be a resource for, for stakeholders here in the state uh, to provide information that's useful in helping Mainers uh, think about how we're going to respond to a warming world. And as part of that work, we also train graduate students from all over the world. And in our labs, we employ undergraduates uh, who are our you know, majors from many, many different departments. Um, I've got 
cap a capstone student right now who's a tourism uh, major actually and she's interested in how climate change is going to affect people coming to Acadia National Park um, and I've got you know earth science students and biology students and they're getting real-world experiences that are preparing them for the scientific workforce um, and those students may go on to things like policy or you know they may not all become uh, scientists or even academics I mean very few of them will probably be academics but um, the hands-on experiences that they're getting um, working in the lab is you know are going to be really useful for them and I also bring these same ideas into the classroom so I'm, I'm teaching paleoecology right now to a whole bunch of majors from different disciplines and they are getting hands-on real-world experiences um, doing a, a field-based project uh, from some guinea pig poop samples from Peru <laughs> and from an archaeological site uh, and they're they're doing real science on those samples They've never been analyzed before, um, and in theory, these students will get a scientific publication out of it. Talk about the future. What discoveries you hope to make, or what what, uh, what does the future hold for you in this field? Well, we're really excited about our upcoming field campaigns. We're going, uh, like I said earlier, we are working on both sides of the the old Bering Land Bridge that used to connect Asia and North America. So we are going into the field to Alaska this summer, um, bringing some... Uh, grad students and undergraduates with us, which will be fun. And uh, one of my students is going to Russia, so he'll be on the other side of the bridge. <laughs> and uh, so we're really excited to continue this work um, exploring the prehistory of Arctic ecosystems and, and why large herbivores matter in those systems. Uh, I also have a new NASA-funded project to look at ferns and why ferns were so prolific after the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs. Um, so I'm just really excited to, uh, to continue that and some other projects uh, we've got going on looking at um, the alpine communities here in Maine and how resilient they might be in, uh, to a warming world. And uh, so, you know, I just love that we get to do really important research using the lens of the past to help us understand and prepare for, for climate change everywhere from, you know, the Arctic to the Falkland Islands to right here in some of my very favorite places in the whole world, which are, you know, here in Maine. Well, fascinating stuff. We appreciate you uh, sharing it with us. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll put in another plug for Jacqueline's excellent podcast, which she does with a colleague. It's called Warm Regards. You can find that in our podcast as well in many of the places you get your other podcasts. Send us your feedback, if you have any, at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. Thanks for checking us out. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.